Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello, and welcome to Safety Talk. I am your host and personal safety expert Pete Canavan. I bring over 25 years of personal safety and online security as the host of this show. My company provides a range of personal safety and security solutions in both the digital world and the physical world. Now, I do this through speaking and workshops, online courses and consulting to corporations, colleges, and at conferences. To learn more, you can always visit my personal website at PeteCanavan.com. So we've got another incredible guest for you guys today who will be talking about another perspective on safety. This episode will be of major value to any and every company out there since we're going to be talking about the safety and security uh, of your business, of your organization, and uh, we're going to touch on policies, we're going to touch on workplace violence, we're going to touch on terrorism a little bit, we're going to see where the conversation takes us. So it should be a great show, so we're going to get rocking and rolling here. So our guest today is the Senior Security and Intelligence Consultant at Blue Glacier Security and Intelligence. Uh, they have experience in training in intelligence, risk, uh, threat and vulnerability assessments, executive protection, business continuity, and counterterrorism. He has previously served as a military intelligence officer, and of course we thank him for his service. And he's a certified protection professional, CPP through ACES International. In addition to him being a presenter and a writer, he holds not one but two master's degrees, one in global risk from Johns Hopkins University and one in military operational art and science from the U.S. Air Force's Air Command and Staff College. He has led community continuity planning and risk assessments for the U.S. government, for private industry. Uh, he has overhauled the major U.S. counterterrorism plan for the Middle East, and he's also presented, presented at the Global Security Exchange on security risks to the 2020 Olympics, which will be coming up next year. Uh, also, uh, familiar with hardening concerts and special events, which uh, unfortunately, as we've seen, has been uh, something that we need these days. So it is with my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Kofi Campbell to Safety Talk. Welcome. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me on, Pete. So uh, love your show. Love your uh, podcast. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, we try to bring on people and you know, a lot of different perspectives to safety, different uh, companies, different products, different technologies. And you know, obviously, we're all about improving safety, improving security, and uh, I'm excited to have you on so we can talk about, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, you're an expert in and, uh, and the safety and security policies and why, you know, really they're vitally important organizations, especially today. And, you know, businesses get, I think, overwhelmed at times. They don't know really know where to start. Uh, so I briefly mentioned at the start of the show, and, uh, you know, I think you would agree that, you know, that's something that has become of paramount importance for people today, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, some things are often overlooked or neglected in the, uh, in the security field. Now, one thing that I, I asked my guests and yourself included to do is to write down one sentence to me that describes the problem that you or your company solves in society, in business, or in the world. And, uh, and it's a heavy question, and it's one that really requires the guests to go and sort of really summarize in one sentence what it is that they do. Uh, and it was interesting because your answer was uh, risk illiteracy uh, and that it is pervasive in society and the business world. And that what Blue Glacier does is they improve the public's and their clients' understanding and awareness of those risks, thereby increasing their risk literal literacy <laughs> so i really like that and uh i just want to kind of get your thoughts on on that and uh before we dive in with some of our more specific questions for you sure uh so yeah it's it's a term i i can't take credit for the term risk literacy risk illiteracy but um uh, i think there's a professor somewhere in the northeast that came up with that but basically um if you look at everything from how the public uh, perceives the, uh, the the risk of active shooter to terrorism there's a lot of risk leaders illiteracy in the world and when it comes to businesses it's also prevalent there too so uh you have businesses that don't know their risk they're risk illiterate because they haven't done a risk assessment right so they install a thousand dollars worth of cameras and um without having the benefit of a risk assessment, right? So um, we 
try to um, we try to um, increase the risk literacy of not only clients but also general public. So you'll see in our social media post, uh, for example, um, we we try to bring um, we try to uh, inform the public of things that might not be covered on the news. For example, um, uh, last week about, I think it was just about 70 people, 70 soldiers died in Niger, right? Uh, terrorist attack. Not sure who the two, um, no one has really claimed our responsibility for it as far as I know, but you you never see that on the news, right? Um, right. Unless if it's in Europe, you'll, you'll hear about it, but, but in Niger, you won't. So um, there is a perception that oh, it's um, um, France has it so bad. They do, but realize other countries in the world um, um, have it even worse. And so that that's an example of the risk uh, increase in the public's um, risk literacy. Yeah, one of the things that I, I have on uh, my safetytalkpodcast.com site is uh, a news aggregator. So I pull in a lot of safety and security news from all over the place. And it amazes me that I learn about all kinds of things because of that. Uh, and it's very difficult to stay on top of things because, I mean, unfortunately, as you know, things are happening all the time. Yeah. And you're right. The If it's not, you know, somewhere that somebody may be considering going on vacation or visiting, or if it's not, uh, you know, one of the, the larger more well-known countries like in the U.S. and Europe uh, or in Canada or something like that. And you're saying in, in some third world countries, people kind of brush it off. But, right. you know, it's it's not something that we can ignore because these problems are global. These problems happen all the time. We have people that are bent on doing harm to everyone and anyone in a lot of cases, no matter where they are. And it's really sad, it's really upsetting, and it's infuriating, and it makes me really angry that, you know, people think killing innocent lives is somehow making a statement that's going to further their cause. Exactly. And it just, it, it, it doesn't. You know, if anything, it, <laughs> no. it paints a target on you and your cause, and it makes you out to be the person that nobody wants to deal with. And then, you know, companies like the United States and our allies, we do everything possible to try and eradicate those vile, you know, bugs. <laughs> you know, I don't even want to give them the, the, the credit of, of being human because they're just, they're unbelievable in how they act, their mindset. And unfortunately, it's something that is ingrained in a lot of these people from the time they're kids. So from the time they're very young, they're taught that, you know, freedom is bad, the United States is evil, and they're sort of brainwashed. And it's a really hard thing, I think, for anybody to try to sort of change that narrative, because in order to do so, we've got to somehow get to these people, these kids, when they're very young, and change that narrative. I mean, would you agree with that? I completely agree. The um, it's not impossible, but um, what we find, unfortunately, um, in most in many countries, most countries, um, we we tend to focus on the on the more sexy stuff of the um, of um, going after the bad guys, right? Um, and and that was one of my jobs. Um, I loved where I would offer recommendations how to degrade, disrupt these terrorist groups and and individuals. Um, but, um, that's awesome, man. What, Kick butt. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of work, sometimes stressful, <laughs> get something oh, wrong. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> can end up being court-martialed, go to jail, which is, right. which is correct, which is good. Um, if, you know, cause, uh, you know, we try to minimize mistakes, but yeah, um, going after the ideology is, is actually as important, if not more important. And it's not something that, uh, policymakers tend to focus on, unfortunately. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's let's start off by talking about uh, the importance of, you know, to, to sort of bring this home here, the importance of an organization's safety and security policies. You know, so like, what what do these policies look like, uh, and why are they important for businesses, especially today? So you know, a policy is basically um, how an organization sets goals, uh, or it's it's the goals and objectives of an organization, right? That that's that's what it is. Um, it's basically what 
the organization wants to do, the mandatory statement of what an organization wants to do in terms of security, and, but also anything else, uh, drug, um, drug substance abuse, um, uh, workplace violence. So uh, these are very high level, it's a very high level statement that's mandatory. And when I say mandatory, that's important because um, if there's no disciplinary action behind the violation of said rule, then it's not, um, it, it's not really a policy. Uh, so uh, what, what I find is that many organizations, they don't have that in place. And it's important not just for nonprofits, but also for, uh, for, for profit organizations, right? Uh, no matter what the organization, even houses of worship uh, need to have a policy. You know, you go into any house of worship and ask, okay, you want a risk assessment, where can I see your policy? And a lot, a lot of folks don't have it. Right. Uh, I had somebody on the show and they they specifically are working on protecting houses of worship, and uh, they did a virtual summit that I was privileged to be a part of, in talking about you know what can we do to to protect houses of worship, and uh, that was uh, that was uh, Mr. George Wheeler from uh, Shadow Track Twenty Four Seven, and so if anybody's not familiar with that organization, that is exactly what they do. Uh, they they do a lot of, of safety and security, but yeah, houses of worship is a biggie. And, you know, we've seen that, uh, unfortunately be something that's in the news now where it's like, you know, nowhere is safe, you know, right. churches and synagogues and temples. And it's like, it's, it's absolutely crazy. It's like, you know, people are trying to gather to, to pray and to worship and to, you know, get together with the community and, right. you know, nowhere is safe. You're constantly, you know, looking over your shoulder and it's it's a scary thing. So I'm pulling up your your site now because you do have uh, risk assessment services. You know, obviously not just for houses of worship, but you know for all different types of businesses, commercial facilities, you know, private residences, etc. So so that's fantastic. So I, I encourage anybody to go to blueglaciellc.com uh, to look at that. So let's look at um, so we have policies and we have procedures, right? Um, can you explain the difference between the two and, and the important differentiation between those two? Sure. And, and this can be confusing for uh, a lot of folks. A client, uh, during the preliminary uh, survey I did for a potential client, uh, her, her, um, her the domain POC wondered, hey, what's the difference between policy and procedure? It's, it's, it can be confusing. Uh, the, way I like, the way I like to relay it is policy is what an organization wants to do and procedure is how you want to do it. Right. Uh, so uh, so that mandatory statement, this is what we want. Uh, we want to ensure that um, that we have 360 degrees. All entrances are are um, have access control. Um, violence, uh, workplace violence prevention is a top priority for us. That, that's that's what how is OK. Uh, we are going to have uh, contract guards or non-contract guards. It's the how. Mm -hmm. how you're going to do it. The specifics um, of it. Both, both are important for legal and regulatory reasons. Um, in addition to, um, in addition to um, establishing buy-in from senior management. Uh, so um, the security policy shouldn't be written by, shouldn't be signed by the security um, chief, the CSO. Ideally it's signed by, um, by the CEO or CO or some other executive or um, of the organization, or you know, if it's a house of worship, the 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 lead, um, the pastor, or or whatever that might. That the person might where the uh, the buck stops with them, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, and same with workplace <clears throat> violence uh, prevention policy. Now, I think you know. Anymore, we're seeing that we have a big legal portion of this, right? Because right. We're, seeing, we're seeing insurance companies requiring policies and procedures. Uh, they want to know, you know, what do you have in place if there is something that, that happens? Um, how are you going to mitigate your risks? How are you going to recover from those risks? You know, show us proof of your compliance. Show us proof of uh, that things that you're using, software-wise, operating system, right. antivirus, firewalls, whatever, make sure that stuff's all up to date, et cetera. So from a legal perspective, uh, it's obviously important to have those policies in place. Uh, could you maybe expand a little bit on the 
the legal reasons for having those safety and security policies. Sure. And, and this is, um, you know, the, the, of course, the, it's important to have that CEO buy-in, right, um, or executive buy-in. Uh, but legally, no organization wants to be um, at the receiving end of a lawsuit because something happened, say, worst case scenario, active shooter, extremely rare. I shouldn't say extremely rare, but they are rare, contrary to mm-hmm. popular belief, um, whether it's a school or business or house of works, they're rare. But the yeah, impact, better chance of getting struck by lightning twice than being a victim of an active shooter, exactly, I would say. But still, exactly. you, don't wanna, you don't want to take your chances, right? Exactly, because the impact is huge, um, mm-hmm. not only emotionally, but um, potentially on the bottom line over the organization, if it, especially if it's a profit organization, uh, if it's an organization that's in the business to make money, right? Um so when, when something happens and you don't have a policy in place, um, smart lawyers are going to come after you and, 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 and arguably rightfully so, right? So um, they're, they're le- those are some of the legal ramifications of not having a policy. Regulatory uh, reasons include OSHA, the, uh, the, um, the safety and health um, administration on the Department of Labor, under their general duty clause, they mandate that um, that organizations have this, have some kind of policy to guarantee a safe workplace. Yeah. Um, and I've seen, um, if, if you do a search for OSHA, fine, uh, violence, um, <laughs> OSHA does not mess around with that. I think the largest I've seen so far is about quarter, almost quarter million dollar fine on mm-hmm. a health organization somewhere up north a few years ago. Um, at the state level, you have the state equivalent of OSHA uh, for, for all, if not most states, and they also have requirements. So, that, so that's why um, it's not only good business practice, but you, but you want to have, um, to meet your regulatory requirements, you want to have policies in place and procedures. Sure, because it can protect you. And I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, you're trying to protect the people that are, you know, in your care if you're a business and those are employees at the workplace. You want to be protecting the customers and their data that's in your systems. Yeah. And so you've got to have a plan. And, you know, one of the things that I do is, is cybersecurity plan development. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a seven-step basically course that says, okay, here's what you do. Step one, step two, step three, and it takes you right through. And at the end of those seven steps, you've got a plan. You know what the risks are, you know what the realistic risks are in those threats, and then how to deal with those. And, you know, you have a plan for recovery for that business continuity piece, which is huge because we all know that something, you know, can put a company out of business very quickly if they're not prepared for it. You know, if, you, if you're a, a business that's, you know, a, pro, a for-profit business and something impacts your ability to generate and, and pull in that, that money and it impacts you for not just days, but maybe, you know, a couple of weeks, that may be all it takes to, to put you out of business, especially if you're a big business bringing in a lot of money on a daily basis. Right. And uh, so it's a, that's, a, that's a big, uh, it's a huge thing that companies have to get serious about and they're if you're not already doing it on your own voluntarily, you're going to be forced to do it sooner rather than later. So you might as well, you know, turn around and, and do some research and figure out, hey, what do I got to do? You know, how much do I got to spend? Do I have to hire people? Yes or no. And that's where you, you turn to somebody like myself, you turn to somebody like, like you, like someone who is familiar with what has to be done. And then you figure out, you know, what to do it. So business-wise, who would you say is the the person that would be the one that you are talking with at the organization? Is it the business owner or would that or the the president or would it be you know like a CSO, CISO, CIO, somebody like that? So you know when, when we go, it's it's usually someone um, below the C, CEO, uh, COO level or equivalent that that we speak to um so uh but when we the highest level possible when we're uh when we're doing a risk assessment right uh because um a lot of times you want to find out um what the concerns are 
um, okay, before we do this risk assessment, what are your concerns? And the higher that, the higher level that comes from, the better. So ideally, the CEO um, would be part of that, part of the, some of the, part of the interviews that that we have, or um, at, you know, or right below that level. Um, in terms of the, in terms of uh, the policy. Um, or helping write the policy, uh, for example, business continuity policy. Um, the ideally perfect world, the CEO um, would be would be the person we're uh, working with to 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 at minimum get input on that policy. You know, before we draft it. The higher the higher level, the better. Sure, and you know something that affects a big company, that's going to affect everybody, right? The board of directors could, is going to be impacted, uh, you know, shareholders, you know, anybody that has a stake in that company. So making sure that they understand the the impact that it's going to have, you know, potentially like a, that ripple effect throughout the entire organization, top to bottom, as well as, you know, going out to, like I said, to like shareholders and, and people like that, <clears throat> that's, that's a big thing. So uh, obviously, you know, policies, procedures, they're all great. Um, are there any negatives or, or downsides to to policies that you put in place? Maybe too restrictive. What are your thoughts on on that? Sure. Too restrictive, too t- detailed. Like, hey, no, this shouldn't be in there. It's a procedure. It's how you're getting it too into the weeds. Um, this, so that's that's one that's one potential downfall. Um, if you know if they're too restrictive, the other is uh, if it's not in line with the culture of the organization. So it's great, as, especially as consultants go and say, okay, here's what. In case they want us to do that, or if they hire us to do the risk management piece after the risk assessment piece, okay, help us draft the policy. If that policy is not in line with the culture of the organization, then that that's a, that's a bad thing, right? Um, that's a huge thing that you just yeah, said, right. and I think we need to take a minute to talk about that because. You, I, you guys probably do the same thing, <clears throat> which is when you come in, you got to look at what, what's the mission of the company, right? What's their vision? Where do they want to go? What do they stand for? And what is the corporate culture? Right. Because if you put two restrictive policies and procedures in place that stymie the or go run counter to the corporate culture, there's going to be a problem and people aren't going to follow those policies and procedures. For example, if you've got a cutting edge like software development company. Well, you've got to kind of have not as restrictive policies and procedures in place that allow some sort of latitude with development because otherwise you're going to lose your competitive advantage. On the flip side, you need to have very restrictive policies and procedures in place for a place like a financial institution exactly. where you're, you know, you're touching dollars every day, you know, or an investment firm, something like that. So, Which if- also, by the way, has, you know, has um, regulatory requirements also, mm-hmm. if not legal requirements as in you know federal law or depending where they are even you know state law yeah but corporate culture is huge so you have they ha- you have to make sure i mean right from the get-go hey what's the culture at your company and make sure that the things that you do and the policies and procedures you put in place are going to be in line with that exactly otherwise uh, it'll blow up it just right. it just won't work you put things in place and people aren't going to follow them because it's it runs counter to how things work there essentially exactly i'm <laughs> right, so so, oh, sorry go and, on and, and and well and that that's very important because you know um you need you need once you get that buy-in from from the bosses that's important and then if you um and then it flows it flows downhill from there too restrictive. It doesn't pay attention to the culture. If it's inconsistent with the culture of an organization, then that just um, that reduces the likelihood of buy-in from the top folks. So that so that's really important. Now, something you, you talked about earlier, and I, I want to kind of switch gears and talk about that. And that's one of the, the subset of safety and security, where having policies and procedures can really help in a concrete situation, such as having a workplace violence policy, for example. Uh, that's a big thing now. A lot of companies need to uh, address this because we're seeing it happen, you know, again, with, you know, increasing frequency and it's unfortunate. But uh, for those companies out there that maybe don't have one or those that do have one and, and would like to get your insights to it, what should their workplace violence policy sort of look like? Like, what should it include? Obviously, we can't go into every part of it, but kind of as a, as a high level sort of summary of that sure so uh there there are several things but you know if i had to if i had to narrow it down to the top three 
uh, one, um, it needs to define, it needs to define the, what, what's, what's, what there's zero policy for, zero tolerance for, right? So it needs to define um, uh, viol- uh, threats, behavior, and actual acts of violence. That's very important. And also where that applies to. A lot of the companies think it's just, you know, they focus on the on-site. No, if you have, it needs to, uh, it needs to include off-site uh, elements too. So if, uh, for example, uh, Christmas parties, right? We're Christmas there you time go. now. So if you're at a bar or a restaurant, someplace you rent it out, uh, the policy needs to state that the workplace violence uh, prevention policy applies to those locations to after hours, as long as it's a work function. The second thing that's important is uh, it needs to have, it needs to state disciplinary action. If your policy doesn't um, identify potential disciplinary consequences, then it's, it's not a policy or it's a very weak policy. So that's very important. And the third um, absolutely important thing is um, some reporting, uh, reporting procedures, um, mandatory, mandatory and recommended, right? So um, mandatory, if, if something, and it depends on state law also, but if say, let's take a restraining order, uh, um, on a spouse or or former spouse, um, that needs to be um, if there's a workplace nexus, um, that needs to be mandatory or um, or recommended in uh, in the workplace violence policy. So those are some of the the, the some of um, the top ones that absolutely have to be in uh, in workplace violence prevention policy. There are others too, but those are the uh, top ones. No, that's awesome. Thank you for that because it's it's important, and I think you, the, it's a great time to to think about the like you just mentioned the extension of that policy to beyond the workplace. Right. If it's a work related function like a Christmas party, a holiday party, uh, you know, some sort of I don't know, maybe award ceremony, something, right? Something that's off site. Hey, this is a work related function. Those policies that we had in place, you know, at your desk this morning apply tonight when we're out and about. Right. And, uh, and I think that may not be communicated to the employees the way that it should be. And so employers out there need to, you know, maybe send out a reminder email uh, the afternoon of right. an event that's going on that evening and say, hey, you know, we want to make sure everybody has a good time tonight. But remember, the workplace, you know, policies that we have here extend to the event this evening. Just keep that in mind. Have a great time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so that would be something that really should be included in their sort of their, their daily operations, their uh, exactly. sort of checklist, if you will, before some, you know, event, whether it's a conference, whether it's a, a dinner or a party, et cetera. So that, right. that's a really good, really good point, especially, you know, this, you know, around a holiday time. Right. Now, we hear a lot about active shooter training. So, I mean, I have to touch on it here because this is sort of part and parcel of, you know, the workplace violence thing. And, uh, and even though it is something that is a rare event, we don't want to just stick our heads in the sand and think it's not going to happen to me because every single person that was ever the victim of an active shooter event said the same thing. Never thought it would happen to me. Right. And, uh, and the same holds true for people that are victims of other crimes, right? I mean, whether it's a, a burglary or, uh, some other sort of, you know, a kidnapping, whatever it happens to be, uh, everybody's going to say the same thing. Oh my God, I never thought it was going to happen to me. So we know that it's important to conduct uh, active shooter training in a lot of different businesses, obviously in schools and whatnot. Uh, but what are some other components that should be included in the workplace violence training? Because I think the active shooter training is sort of an easy one to just say, oh, we do active shooter training to, to, to handle our workplace violence. Well, there's a lot of other stuff. You got disgruntled employees, person just got fired. They're coming in with, uh, you know, now they're all pissed off because, you know, they don't know why, they don't understand. Maybe it wasn't communicated to them properly. I had another gentleman on the show. He talked all about that. You know, sometimes having an independent third party sit in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, um, what other elements should be included apart from just like the active shooter training with regard to workplace violence training? Sure. So... You know, it, it, there are different levels. So for all employees, you want to, you know, you want to include um, 
uh, there's the response piece, right? Here's what you do, run, hide, fight, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> That's important. Right. Or if you, even if you use some other methodology other than run, hide, fight, that, that's the response. That's very important. Um, for, um, for and, and, you know, and also policies. Um, you, during that training, you want to reiterate, hey, um, we have a policy against Boolean, for, for example. For management, supervisors, um, executives, um, you want to, in the training, you might want to have separate training that includes warning behaviors. Uh, so that that's that's important. So um, there there's way too much empirical evidence out there to to ignore that and not provide that to executives and and, and management and supervisors. And that's something that we provide. So for example, um, and you see it almost every day, every time there's an active shooter, you, there there's there are a lot of times warning behaviors. Uh, so for example, what just off the top of my head, uh, uh, fixation is one. Right is is an example that that I'll briefly talk about. Um, if if someone is uh, there's there's a recent shooter that would who he he forced his I think it was the last act shooter he forced his um his girlfriend to watch um, videos of uh, of mass shootings right um, I think it was the uh, the New Zealand uh, shooting at the mosque mm-hmm. just repeatedly forced her to do it that's fixation when you start um, when someone's uh, professional or personal life um, starts to be influenced by their um, by a compulsive um, compulsively watching videos and, and other things or focusing on um, people who've committed prior acts of violence. That's fixation, that's a red flag. So that's just an example of one of several warning behaviors it would be good to train um, some you know, management supervisors on. Yeah, and unfortunately people don't wanna be the one, <laughs> right? That, uh, that says, hey, I think there might be a problem here, but hey, better safe than sorry anymore. And I think people are starting to, to realize that when you see these these warning sign behaviors, don't ignore them. And unfortunately, we see it all the time. People have made posts on social media just prior to doing one of these events. Well, the people that see that, you've got to reach out. You got to say, hey, you know, I know so-and-so, and they just put this really disturbing post out on their timeline, and I'm not really sure what it means, but it's there's something, you know, strange about it. And, um, you know, I think it may warrant somebody checking into it. If it turns out to be, quote, nothing, all right, well, so maybe inconvenience somebody, but at the same time, what's the alternative? Would you rather inconvenience somebody on, a, on what could potentially be a, a catastrophic, uh, you know, act of violence or ignore it and then after the fact go, I should have said something? And that's no. an example of uh, th- that example there with post to social media. That's another one behavior leakage, right? And and the vast majority of active shooters, um, they they have leakage where uh, it's not a th- it's not a threat, uh, especially not a direct threat, but they basically leak that on social media or in comments to folks. A lot of times that doesn't get reported. I think we're um, society's getting better at that now. They're getting mm-hmm. more risk literate. Um, in terms of that. So that's good, but we're not where we should be in terms of uh, organizations. So when an organization is taking a look, you know, maybe they're listening to this, uh, this episode that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, policies and procedures and they're thinking, you know what, I, I should go about, maybe I should go take a look at what my policies say. What would you recommend to an organization in terms of uh, how they should go about evaluating what they currently have? Sure. So uh, the the big thing is to, to hire. It's always good to hire an outside expert. Uh, so to to do that risk assessment uh, of that policy, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, have an outside expert come in and look at look at your policy, and they might find things that you might not otherwise uh, see. That that that's that's the key, and that's not uh, that's not done enough, and and not not just for businesses, but that needs to be done for spe- for events also. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know you, you should have you should have policies for for special events also. Now, at a at a special event, obviously, or even at work, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a man made act of violence. We could be talking about natural disasters as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, just like you plan for a fire or a flood, you plan now for workplace violence and active shooters and things like that. So, both of these can affect businesses. 
what should a business look for regarding you know policies that have to do with the business continuity aspect of this? Sure. So um, there are, you know, there there are some basics. Um, First of all, do you have a pol- do you have a policy in place? Period. That that's <laughs> right. It's number one. <laughs> and then you know, risk assessment too. A lot of times, there's overlap between risk assessment for security and risk assessment for for um, for business continuity. In fact, you could sometimes use the same data for that. In fact, some some folks argue you should use the same data for mm-hmm. that. So uh, your risk assessment in business continuity that results in your um, in your business impact. That should be feeding your, you know, your security policy too. So making sure that you have that risk assessment in place, um, um, having that buy-in from 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 leadership for for that's important for business continuity as it is for security, right? And disaster recovery, you need you need that top level buy-in from the CEO or or head honcho, whoever he or she is, or the CEO somewhere at, at that level. So those, so those are some uh, big ones. Uh, I, and then I would also make sure that, you know, you talking about uh, recovery time objective, recovery point objective, you know, at what point do you want to, um, at what point do you want to recover or be able to recover your data or your business operations? Um, there, there, are very, there are various, without getting into, into a lot of um, details, business continuity, um, those are some big picture, top-level thing, things, um, risk assessment, policy in place, upper, you know, um, senior-level buy-in. So one of the, I, I, for those of us that, uh, for those of the, viewers that are or listeners that are watching this, uh, the, the video of this, I'm pulling up the website. Uh, again, as I have been doing throughout here to, to highlight some of the things that, that you guys do there at Blue Glacier. Uh, for those who are just listening to this, make sure you go and check out blueglacierllc.com for some of this information. Uh, so like right now, what you're talking about, you know, in terms of the services, you know, these include things like, you know, warning of potential threats and insights, you know, for example, into current events, you know, what are some of the key things that are going around in the geopolitical space, right? Uh, what's happening that could potentially impact your business? Of course, situational awareness, which, you know, obviously you're taught in the military. Uh, a lot of people aren't as familiar with that. Uh, what I tell people is you need to be, quote, armed with awareness, right? Because if you're armed with awareness, it's not like a gun or a knife or a club or pepper spray or a flashlight or something to be taken away from you, exactly. right? It's something that you can be armed with all the time and you should be armed with all the time. Right. And uh, so that's a biggie. And then uh, of course, you know, long-term assessments, things like, you know, travel, you know, how, how uh, can you be impacted when you're traveling? Uh, and then you have here intelligence cycle and sources, uh, signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, human intelligence. Uh, can you kind of just give us a real quick summary of what those uh, all kind of fall under this intelligence cycle and sources piece? Sure. So um, a lot of people see that. So, oh, you're, um, you're a government contractor. Well, th- yeah, um, yeah, we provide services to the government. We have the capability to do that. But um, you, will, you need to understand the intelligence cycle um, if you are a private business, for example, um, uh, cyber, right? Um, so that's one thing that we'd like to do more of is basically um, teach cyber folks how to do intel because you need to know what you're defending against. So um, the intelligence cycle um, within the government um, should not be much different than it is in the um, in the private sector. So yeah, it carries it, over it, just because it it's something developed for government. Right. It, that's it was developed for government. Take advantage of it. Use it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And it's a well, it's a well proven uh, concept um, cycle. So of course there'll be less hu- human intelligence, uh, maybe less geo int uh, imagery intelligence in the, in the government. Um, but not so much. You're seeing uh, more capabilities develop, especially on the imagery side. So basically um, um, organizations need to be able to how t- to do that task and, and intelligence cycle to help drive things like their cyber uh, cyber defenses. Yeah, one of the things that I have, and uh, and, I'm, and you're probably going to be familiar with this there, Kofi, is um, OODA, right? O-O-D-A. OODA loop, right, right. Um, <laughs> and I, I tell businesses, use that, right? I mean, because it's something that was, you know, the military developed, but I mean, that's essentially giving you the tactics to, you know, respond to a crisis, right? I mean, you observe, orient, decide, and then exactly. act. Exactly. 
Exactly. And it's a great way to, to approach a problem, right? Because you have to observe everything that's going on in the company from the infrastructure. You, right. you know, you apply prioritization to different things. Um, you look at the latest threat intelligence. You look at what risks are out there. Uh, I tell businesses, and look at the ones that are realistic. Like, don't get yourself hung up on things that you have no control over. Like, if an asteroid hits the planet, we're all screwed. Don't worry about it, right? Right, exactly. Um, if there's a zombie apocalypse, uh, we're all screwed. Don't worry about it. So, and and is it really realistic, right? So, certain things could be threats, could be risks, but if they are of a global impact and they affect everybody and there's nothing anybody can do about it, don't concern yourself with it, right? Look at the ones that are realistic to your business. You know, somebody hacking in, somebody stealing data, an employee who is being blackmailed and trying to steal, you know, uh, company files off your, off your network, something like that. Those are the things that you need to look at. Those are the things you need to focus on and then orient your resources around that, right? The other O. Right. And then, of course, decide, all right, based on all of that, uh, in the first couple of steps, decide on what those next steps are and then finally, you know, act on the things that you've decided to do. And, and, um, and a lot of that's part of the risk literacy piece, risk literacy I was talking about, where, you know, if, you, if you're a tiny organization out um, in rural Utah, you, you rule Wyoming, um, you probably not shouldn't be as concerned with terrorism as, right. uh, for example, a defense firm or financial firm on Wall Street. Now, we talked about how uh, it's important to have these policies and procedures extend beyond the workplace to, you know, to parties or dinners or conferences or things like that. Uh, we could also then extend that and extrapolate that out to travel, right? You know, because you're traveling for business. Uh, so those safety and security policies should also cover business travel and duty of care and things like that, correct? Absolutely. And it's the same thing uh, in terms of the implicate legal implications um, and also regulatory implications, but especially legal implications. You, uh, an organization does not want to be um, at the receiving end of a lawsuit if uh, uh, you have overseas travel, something happens, lawyers come back and ask, okay, uh, something happened to your employee, kidnapping or whatever. Um, what are your policies to cover this. Uh, yeah, how many companies probably have a policy on that? I don't think right. too many. Not too many. Uh, you need to have a duty of care policy written. I don't care what your what your guidelines are, what your procedures are, have that policy in place or less you're just um, setting yourself up for fa failure in the court system. Yeah, and that's, you know, nobody wants that. Uh, one of the, um, the things that we've talked about on, on the show before is staying safe at concerts and special events and stuff. Uh, you had done a presentation at the ACES Global Security Exchange. Uh, you've also written for Homeland Security Today magazine. Uh, and you talk about something called Protect the P3. Uh, obviously, that's something you feel is important. What, what is that? Right. Uh, so basically, and I might change it to protect the, uh, the, the three P's because P3 sometimes mean the you know, principle number three in the executive protection world, which, you know, based on my uh, EP experience. But basically, um, it's, it's protect the... Uh, the first thing is protect the uh, performer. That's important. And um, in, in my presentation, a couple of years ago, I gave, uh, or last year, I gave um, specific examples and showed videos of that happening, where that, that, didn't, that all around the world, too, um, where um, they didn't do a good job of that, either the person's protective, the performance protective detail or event staff. That's important. The second P is protect the patrons. Um, that does not, um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen often or it doesn't happen well. So the most extreme example, uh, sometimes you'll see, um, you'll see um, barriers fall, people get injured, um, sometimes fall in as many as, as much as 10 feet. Um, it also means, it also results in security being um, too good. So um, the shooting in in um, in Mexico a couple of years ago um, at the electronic dance electronic dance music festival where patrons could not escape they had to be catapulted over by fellow patrons over a big uh, big gate in the back right so that they did a good job of the third P which is protect the pocketbook which is you know, <laughs> keep, keep folks from coming in 
who aren't ticketed, but it did, it was too good of a job where it didn't protect patrons because they couldn't escape from the shooter. Uh, it was right. it was gang related or uh, cartel related. Um, they couldn't escape the shooter that came in through the front. So those are the P three: uh, protect the pocketbook, protect the patrons, protect the performer. And all too awesome. often, one or more of those um, is not done well. No, that was great, and uh, and I think that now a lot of people are gonna be like, oh, okay, it makes sense, right? The performer, the patrons, and and you know the pocketbook. You know, you got to protect you know the financial uh, interests of of the organization or the event. Right. Now you've you've obviously got a very strong intelligence background working with the military again. Thank you for your service. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks. And um, you also, in some of your writings, you talk about the importance of intelligence in security operations, and obviously that comes from your your military background. So some people say, well, you know, I don't have a military background. I'm not quite sure where to sort of begin or, or how to move that piece of it forward. So maybe you could give some examples of of how intelligence can be used and then maybe where it was not used or was not paid attention to. Sure. So, um, so some organizations do this extremely well. Um, you, you have a stalker who exhibits the warning behaviors, right? So, um, you know, that's the protective intelligence piece. So that, that comes in really well. They report that to police and, you know, and they modify their protective detail, um, to uh, based on that threat that that's that's great so uh, two quick examples of that not working well um the the reina the shooting at the reina nightclub new year's eve a couple years ago in turkey in select turkey mm. um the intelligence could not have been better um the owner himself publicly admitted that the u.s officials had told him hey something might go down um, um isis had the year prior had um had intended to target um, New Year's Eve celebrations. Um, they were they were thwarted, but um, they, they made it very clear that they wanted to target um, New Year's Eve celebrations. Um, yet, security was almost non-existent. Was almost non-existent in terms of uh, private security at the club and also police response. Um, uh, Shooter went in, ISIS uh, shooter went in and basically uh, murdered over uh, 30 people. Another quick example um, is the, um, the bombings in, in, uh, in, um, in Southeast Asia uh, earlier this year, right? Um, where the, again, the, the, it couldn't have happened, the intel couldn't have been better where uh, the police chief, uh, military intelligence, basically got wind of this from, from the Indians. Uh, and for because of certain biases, that resulted in almost no, no increase in security and, um, and their uh, bombings at uh, churches in, uh, in, uh, in the area. So when you don't listen to intelligence, um, yeah, bad things can happen. Well, let's. Uh, we are, we're gonna have to get wrapped up, but I gotta. I gotta ask you about the big thing, the big event coming up next year, which is the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Uh, that obviously, you know, could be a target for terrorism, right? You have all millions and millions of people all gathered in in a small area, right. and so you have, you know, your your sort of your imagination can run wild on the types of scenarios that could occur right from a dirty bomb to biological to who knows what it could be to active shooter. Right. Right. Uh, what, uh, maybe you could briefly talk about how going, how do you go about even beginning to analyze and think about and plan for an event of that magnitude? Sure. So um, it, it's hard. I, I, I did some uh, unofficial red teaming. Uh, that was part of my presentation to, uh, to at G Global Security Exchange this year. And unfortunately, two of the things that I, I, I um, concluded or red teamed on actually have happened or, or partly happened. One is the Fukushima radiation. Uh, that's one of the things I had read to you. In addition to radioactive poisoning, um, that's man-made. But the Fukushima thing, um, you look at it from an enterprise security management standpoint. It's not all about bad guys, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, the Japanese officials found um, some hot spots near Fukushima. And that's going to be, that's uh, was only about 20, 30 miles south 
of the venue is only about 20, 30 miles south of Fukushima. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. So that's one thing I'd, I'd mentioned uh, in my presentation when I read team that the other um, is um, the, the Bannon, the dope Bannon of the Russians. Um, the last time that happened, uh, both Rio and Rio 2016 summer Olympics and also Pyongyang, uh, Pyeongchang um, Olympics, Winter Olympics in 2018, the Russians basically unleashed Cyber Hill <laughs> against um, against um, doping organizations and Olympics Olympic officials. Oh, wow. So uh, that's something I mentioned in my presentation, and just last week, um, that's the recommendation from one of the doping agencies that um, Russia be banned from the Olympics. That the complete ban probably won't happen. Mm -hmm. uh for for various reasons but um look for that to impact cyber cyber defenses at the olympics uh so if you are an organization sponsor um go into the olympics if you're going to have folks there uh in tokyo um you need to bring your a game with with cyber wow wow so that's uh, good. Good advice there. So, uh, if people are interested in learning about uh, about you, about uh, your company, Blue Glacier, they can obviously, uh, as I mentioned, the website a couple of times, blueglacierllc.com. Uh, I'm sure social media. I see you 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 sent over to me, and I will be posting uh, different social media links. But basically, if they search for Blue Glacier on any of the social media networks, they'll find you guys, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we uh, have a presence on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, those are our uh, most active, and LinkedIn also. Those are our three most active social media platforms. Awesome. And you could also connect with me, um, k k dot Campbell or k Campbell um, at uh, k initial k uh, Campbell CPP on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, really appreciate you coming on. You got any last thoughts for our audience before I let you go? Uh, just uh, uh, try to uh, everyone should try to increase their risk literacy. It's not always uh, uh, the bad things that might happen or might not be what we think they are. It might not all be about active shooters. It might be uh, cyber. It might be radiation. It might be uh, natural disasters. Just increase your risk literacy. Awesome. Great, great advice. And uh, appreciate you coming on the show there, Coffee. And we will... Uh, be uh, getting you some information on this. Uh, I'll have to connect with you afterwards. I got another, uh, got to run now, but again, uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on Pete. Thanks for tuning into safety talk. You can listen to past episodes and get the latest safety news at our website, safetytalkpodcast.com. Be sure to visit our other websites for free safety checklists and infographics. You can also sign up for free online self-defense training, learn about college campus safety, and find out more about Pete and how he can help educate your school or business through his speaking, workshops, seminars, and consulting. Subscribe to the Safety Talk podcast and never miss out on any new safety information. Until next time, stay safe.